Horatio Nelson stared out at the enemy fleet from his quarterdeck. It was a sunny and warm Spanish morning with a very light breeze, but the weather measurements told Nelson that a storm was coming, just beyond the horizon. He was confident but nervous. The plan that he had drawn up was unconventional, to say the least. Naval battles usually had a predictable cadence. The two fleets would try to outmaneuver each other to get the wind in their favor. And then inevitably, each fleet would form up into a single great line. The two forces would line up line to line and would pound each other with their cannons from some distance until one fleet was beaten into submission. Realizing their defeat, the surviving ships would sail to safety as quickly as they could, and the victors would pursue as opportunity allowed. It had a performative aspect to it, almost like a deadly dance. At the Battle of the Nile, Nelson had disrupted this normal pattern somewhat, but this was something even more daring. Nelson planned to place his lines, he would split his fleet into two for this battle, perpendicular to the enemy and charge straight at them. His ship, the HMS Victory, would be the tip of the spear, meaning that as they approached the enemy, he would be exposed to the enemy's broadside. With the wind blowing very lightly, the Victory was advancing at no more than a walking pace, just a few miles an hour. This meant that Nelson and his ship would be under fire for more than 30 minutes before they could return a shot. The Victory crept along, slowly moving toward the French. Nelson's confidence in victory was as high as ever, but standing prominently on the quarterdeck, looking at the enemy fleet with hundreds of cannons pointed directly at him, Nelson began to sense fate closing in on his own life. As the victory neared the range of the enemy's guns, Nelson went to say goodbye to one of his captains, Henry Blackwood. Blackwood would take a small boat to the rear of the fleet and command the smaller ships and frigates. Should Nelson fall, Blackwood was to assume responsibility for all communications. He would effectively be in command. As Blackwood lowered himself into his boat, Nelson shook his hand. Blackwood, perhaps sensing the melancholy that was overtaking Nelson, said to him, I trust, my lord, that on my return to the victory, which will be as soon as possible, I shall find your lordship well, and in possession of twenty prizes. Nelson looked at him strangely. God bless you, Blackwood, he said to him. I shall never speak to you again. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Horatio Nelson is England's greatest warrior. He was a great naval strategist and innovator. He was a very effective writer and speaker. He was one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. His men were ardently devoted to him, and he inspired in them accomplishments that they did not know themselves capable of. He also has, and I hope I'm not spoiling anything here, one of the most iconic deaths of all time. It is a world historically famous death scene that basically goes... Jesus' death on the cross, Caesar's assassination, and then Lord Nelson's death. This story is also a look at the apex of one of the most effective organizations in world history in the British Navy. So for all these reasons, I think the life of Lord Nelson is a story that we can learn a lot from. Just as a reminder, last episode, we left off with Nelson having won the Battle of the Nile, which crippled the French Mediterranean fleet and left Napoleon stranded in Egypt. Nelson was already a star after the Battle of St. Vincent, but after the Nile, he became an international superstar, True celebrity status. As one contemporary put it, you have now completely made yourself, my dear Nelson, immortal. So we will pick back up and tell the rest of the story after this quick break. As the victor of the Nile, Nelson was now a celebrity. 
And that is where the trouble started. He leaves Egypt, eventually making his way back to Naples, which is in Italy, which is where he makes his headquarters as the commanding officer in charge of the British Navy in the Eastern Mediterranean. He's got a few priorities. One is to keep the French army trapped in Egypt. Another is to support Austrian and other allied troops in Italy, where they continued to battle the French. And he's still under the command of Jervis, who is the admiral in charge of the entire Mediterranean. But Jervis is pretty far away in Gibraltar. And the situation is pretty dynamic. So really, Nelson is exercising more or less independent control out of Naples. In fact, some might say too independent. He was very attached to Naples, to King Ferdinand, the king there, and to the Neapolitan court. Now, there was a solid strategic reason for doing this. King Ferdinand, the king of Naples, was also the king of Sicily, and he was a Bourbon. The Bourbons were the family that had ruled France for hundreds of years, and they had at various times occupied thrones in Spain and Italy and other parts of Europe. And now this Ferdinand of Naples and Sicily was the last Bourbon king anywhere. So keeping a Bourbon on a throne was key because it gave hope to French royalists who wanted to kick out the revolution and restore the French monarchy. Even more importantly, it provided the British with a key base of operations in the Mediterranean. And Nelson is a really crucial part of King Ferdinand's court. He becomes one of the close advisors, and it's really British support that keeps the Kingdom of Naples alive. Their army and navy were a joke. They didn't have strong leadership, but British support meant they could throw their weight around a little bit, and at least confidently assert their independence and, and stay separate and independent from France. In fact, with Napoleon gone from Italy and British support at his back, King Ferdinand gets some ideas that, hey, maybe actually I could make some moves. And so he does. He invades Rome and takes it back from the French. But when the French respond, Ferdinand's army completely collapses. And not only do the French take back Rome, they march straight on through it and go and take Naples. Nelson shuttles Ferdinand to Sicily and then has to help him figure out how he's going to get back in control of his capital, of Naples. And so they do... I mean, really, he does. It, it's mostly the British forces who are masterminding this. Um, the, the Neapolitans just are not capable, are not competent. But there, there's a campaign in southern Italy, and eventually they take back Naples. But it's kind of a fiasco, and thousands of French soldiers and French sympathizers are executed, which doesn't look great. And Nelson is caught up in all this. He's deeply involved. He's really not spending time anywhere else. His attitude is, this is the most important thing happening in the Mediterranean, so I really need to be here in Naples and Sicily helping out. But there might have been another reason for him to want to stay close to Naples. And that is that he had begun an affair with a woman named Emma Hamilton, also known as Lady Hamilton. And Lady Hamilton was born to a working class situation. Her father was a blacksmith who died when she was two months old. So she was raised quite poor. But she was very beautiful and became somewhat famous as a model and a dancer. She began a long affair with an English member of parliament named Charles Greville. But when Charles married, she was sort of an inconvenient presence in his life. He still wanted to take care of his longtime mistress, who he actually had a child by. So he sent her off to his uncle, the British ambassador to Naples, Sir William Hamilton. Lord Hamilton was in his 60s. He was widowed and so was probably, you know, looking for some companionship. Now, Emma Hamilton was what people call a courtesan, which is not something we have today. It's kind of like an upper class prostitute but maybe that's underselling it a little bit. She provided companionship in exchange for money, but these were typically long-term relationships with very wealthy people. And as a courtesan, you needed to be able to have presence and manners, be entertaining, hold your own as a conversationalist. And this was especially true if you're going to be the companion of a diplomat like Lord Hamilton. 
Now, for Lord Hamilton, as an upper-class British aristocrat, marrying a courtesan would be highly irregular to say the least. But Naples was kind of wild. It was a party town. It was sort of like a Monaco or Las Vegas of its day. So it wasn't so much of a problem for him to marry a woman like Emma. So they did. They married. And Emma Hamilton was a perfect companion for Lord Hamilton. She became a very important figure in Naples. She was very intelligent and learned the local Italian dialect extremely well. So the local Neapolitans, they loved her, uh, both the royalty and the common people. They loved that she spoke her language. They loved how beautiful she was. They thought she was glamorous and she was a great conversationalist. She's both intelligent and likable, kind of the, the perfect combination if you're going to be involved in politics, in diplomatic affairs. She also learned other languages, including French and German, and had a solid understanding of European politics. So she quickly became indispensable to Lord Hamilton as a hostess and even as an unofficial fellow diplomat who could not only enhance his efforts, but even at times work independently. So when Captain Nelson meets her, he's immediately impressed by this extraordinary woman. She was everything that his wife, Fanny, was not. Whereas Emma was glamorous, brilliant, worldly, and politically involved, Fanny was an unintelligent parochial homebody. In fact, the moment that he falls in love with Emma is during the flight from Naples, when King Ferdinand has to suddenly retreat to Sicily. Andrew Lambert, in his book Nelson, Britannia's God of War, writes, Emma attended the Bourbon exiles and nursed the youngest of the princes who died in her arms. It was her courage and resolve in a crisis that won Nelson's admiration, and ultimately, his heart. So Nelson and Emma Hamilton begin this torrid affair, and they are not very discreet about it. And they can get away with it. This kind of thing was very acceptable in Naples, so the locals didn't mind. Nelson felt that maybe he was a little entitled to it now that he was, you know, king of the world after his victory at the Nile. And Emma Hamilton's husband, Lord Hamilton, not only permitted, but actively encouraged the relationship. I know, weird, right? No one knows why that is. It definitely wasn't a normal reaction, even at the time. It fascinated people at the time, this, this weird troika. My take is he had a previous marriage and had no children. He had no children by Emma, and he was now nearly 70 years old. His sexual proclivities might have laid elsewhere, who knows? Or perhaps, and I don't mean to offend any of my 70-year-old listeners, perhaps at such an advanced age, he was just not that interested in the sexual element of his relationship. He was just more in it for the companionship to have this brilliant mind around him. And therefore he was happy to have someone around in Horatio Nelson who could, I mean, maybe take her off his hands, keep her satisfied, and at the same time provide a useful political connection to him. In any case, this affair begins and there were some accusations thrown around that the reason Nelson stayed so close to Naples was because of his relationship with Lady Hamilton. This comes to a head when Jervis, who was a great admiral, who Nelson really respected, is replaced with an incompetent admiral named Lord Keith. Keith orders Nelson to take his fleet away from Naples and come help take Minorca, which is a small island off the coast of Spain. Well, frankly, it's a stupid order. Taking his fleet away would leave Naples vulnerable to French attack. And whereas Naples was crucial to British interests in the Mediterranean and was capable of fully supplying them and provided much needed victuals, timber, other resources, Minorca didn't have any of those resources and was therefore, you know, incapable of supporting the fleet. So to put Naples at risk in order to take Minorca, it was just a stupid order. And so Nelson disobeys it. And he does great work in the meantime, helping the Austrians and Russians make crucial gains in Italy. But he's kind of in hot water because he's disobeying his, his commanding admiral. 
those gains that he made in Italy would all be reversed when Napoleon managed to sneak his way back from Egypt to Italy and in June of 1800 wins the Battle of Marengo, undoing in a day all the gains that Nelson had won in Italy over the course of two years. Nelson applied for home leave. His health was poor. He had been at sea for years. He was tired, and his lack of respect for Lord Keith made continued service in the Mediterranean unattractive. He was granted leave by the Navy, and so he and the Hamiltons go back to England on a land route, making their way through Austria and Germany. Lady Hamilton was by now pregnant with Nelson's child, and their journey served as the world's weirdest honeymoon, with Lord Hamilton serving as an awkward third wheel to the two. All along their journey, Nelson is treated as a hero. In Austria, he's greeted by cheering crowds, he meets royalty, he meets all of the famous people of the day. He meets one of the great composers of all time, Joseph Haydn. And as a point of reference, Haydn is a great, great composer. He tutored both Beethoven and Mozart. And he had just finished composing his last great piece of music. It was a dark and troubled piece that was called Misa in Angustis, or A Mass for Troubled Times. He was a reactionary and ardent opponent of the revolution, and he wrote it as Napoleon was first conquering his way through Italy and tossing around the Austrians. And so that's why it was this dark, troubled piece of music, uh, is because he's watching Napoleon score all these victories against his beloved Austria. But the Battle of the Nile had given Haydn new hope. And so the first performance of the piece was for Nelson and Lady Hamilton as they traveled through Austria. So it became known as the Nelson Mass. And I've used some of that music for this episode. So anytime that you hear choral music, you hear that singing, that is the Nelson Mass. When Nelson gets back, he's got Lady Hamilton in tow, and he does the bare minimum in England to hide his new mistress. So it's not long before his wife, Fanny, gives him an ultimatum. He's got to choose his wife or his mistress. And Nelson, I think, might have responded more moderately if Emma hadn't been pregnant with his child. But he's having this child with Emma. He has no children by Fanny. And she's getting older. It's obvious at this point that they're not going to be able to have any children. And so this is how he replied to his wife. He said, take care, Fanny, what you say. I love you sincerely, but I cannot forget my obligations to Lady Hamilton or speak of her otherwise than with affection and admiration. And so that was that. Fanny leaves. She and Nelson would never live together again. And Nelson would treat Emma Hamilton as his de facto wife for the rest of his life. He would continue to meet his financial obligations, but otherwise he completely abandoned Fanny. This was definitely a scandal in England and beyond, but in the early 19th century, it wasn't too unconventional. It wasn't unheard of for a powerful man to live with his mistress. But ever since it has fascinated the public imagination, his affair with Lady Hamilton is one of the things that Nelson is most well known for. When he gets to England, he gets the full hero's welcome, throngs of cheering fans, visits with the rich and powerful, ceremonies, awards, you name it. One of the most interesting encounters he has at this time is with a painter named Benjamin West. West had painted the most famous painting of the age in 1770. The subject of the painting was General James Wolfe, a man very much like Horatio Nelson. He was in the English army rather than the Navy and was known for being a very aggressive attacker. There is a story, perhaps apocryphal, that someone commented to King George II that General Wolfe was rabid and he replied, rabid is he? Well then, I wish he would bite a few of my other generals. General Wolfe 
had led the Battle of Quebec, which was the pivotal battle in the Seven Years' War that established British control over Canada. And he led a very daring attack, which succeeded brilliantly, but General Wolfe was shot and killed in the process. The painting depicts him in an almost Christ-like repose, eyes turned towards heaven with concerned soldiers all around him and a battle transpiring in the background as he dies. It transfixed the British public. Copies and prints sold like crazy. So Nelson is talking with West about this painting, and here's a conversation from a contemporary account. Nelson admitted he was no connoisseur of art, but he said, turning to West, there is one picture whose power I do feel. I never pass a print shop where your death of wolf is in the window without being stopped by it. West, of course, made his acknowledgments, and Nelson went on to ask why he had painted no more like it. Because, my lord, there are no more subjects. Damn it, said the sailor, I didn't think of that, and asked him to take a glass of champagne. But, my lord, I fear your intrepidity will yet furnish me such another scene, and if it should, I shall certainly avail myself of it. Will you, replied Nelson, pouring out bumpers and touching his glass violently against West's. Will you, Mr. West, then I shall hope that I shall die in the next battle. This may have been a lighthearted comment, but the kernel of truth was there. He was willing to pursue glory at any cost, including death if necessary. He had already achieved glory in battle and was one of the most famous men in Britain, but he had yet to achieve the immortality that General Wolfe enjoyed. He obviously wasn't suicidal, but on some level, he really did, I think, have a desire to die a glorious death in battle like General Wolfe did. But we'll come back to that. So he isn't in England long before he is sent to deal with something called the League of Armed Neutrality. And so essentially England was conducting economic warfare on France. Blockading them completely at this point was essentially their only way of dealing with Napoleon. But in order to do that, they had to stop and search just about every neutral ship just to make sure they weren't secretly French smugglers. And so as you can imagine, neutral countries who are having their ships seized are not thrilled about this. So Denmark, Sweden, and Russia form this league of armed neutrality as a way of saying, hey, England, we're not putting up with this anymore. We're not declaring war on you. We're staying out of this fight, but no one can search our ships and we're going to arm ourselves to make sure no one tries. Well, this is not going to fly with the British. It's too easy for a French ship to just put up a Danish flag and then evade the British embargo. So neither side really wants to go to war. The British have their hands full with just the French, so they're not looking for new enemies. And the Danish, Swedes, and Russians know they can't beat the British at sea, so they don't want war either. But the incentives for both sides are such they're slowly sort of stumbling toward a war that neither side wants. And so a fleet is sent to deal with the issue under the direction of someone named Hyde Parker, with Nelson as his number two. Well, Parker's in charge because he's more senior, but he's a nervous and timid man, and Nelson immediately just starts acting like he's the one in charge. And for the most part, this works. I mean, everyone acts like Nelson is in charge, including Parker, who begins to take a sort of secondary passive role. He just defers to him. And as they move this fleet from England east towards the Baltic, Parker is getting more and more nervous because this isn't a clear-cut war, and so he's hesitant to do anything. He doesn't want to fight, but he also doesn't want to retreat. He just wants to move the fleet and show up and hang out and wait for instructions. But Nelson has a really strong grasp of the strategic situation and a clear idea of what should be done. He thinks that the best move is to sail up toward Denmark, and if they don't come to terms right away, engage the Danish fleet, do some real damage, remind them who the masters of the sea really are, and force them to abide by England's terms. Well, as I said, Nelson was the much stronger personality of the two, and so he manages to get his way. 
So they sail on Copenhagen. Parker is nervous from start to finish. He doesn't think this is a good idea. He's scared and nervous, but Nelson has a plan and he's confident in its success. Nelson is the one who actually leads the attacking party and Parker takes command of the reserve on the day of the battle. It's not a very complicated plan. The British fleet is more numerous and more professional than the Danish fleet. The only advantage that the Danish have are the onshore defenses, the well-protected cannons in the city that could assist their fleet. So Nelson decides that they're going to do this the straightforward way. They'll pull in close, form a line, and go mano a mano, the British line against the Danish line, trusting that superior British seamanship will win the day. Experienced British gunners could typically fire their cannons at least twice as quickly as their opponents. So that means for every broadside, which is a broadside is, you know, when they shoot all the cannons on a side of the ship, for every broadside that the enemies could fire, the British could typically fire two. So that really evens out the numbers, even when they have fewer men. Here's what Nelson wrote about the battle plan. He wrote, I hope we shall be able, as usual, to get so close to our enemies that every shot cannot miss their object, and that we shall again give our northern enemies that hailstorm of bullets which gives our dear country the dominion of the seas. We have it, and all the devils in hell cannot take it from us, if our wooden walls have fair play. So Nelson was so good at adding those rhetorical flourishes that motivated his men. Another general might have just said, engage them closely, but not Nelson. He makes sure to add the bit about dominion of the seas and all the devils in hell cannot take it from us. That extra little bit to inspire is part of what made him such a great leader. So on the morning of April 2nd, 1801, Nelson's fleet sailed into the straits around Copenhagen Harbor. The battle started poorly. The area around Copenhagen Harbor is tricky, with a lot of small islands and shoals, and so a few British ships run aground. Luckily for Nelson, he had struck up a rapport with the captain of the frigates, a Captain Ryu. Seeing some of the larger ships run aground, Ryu spontaneously decided to fill their spot in the battle line with a larger number of small frigates under his control. And this effectively plugs the hole that would have existed in the line because some of those ships had run aground. Nelson had a way of inspiring people to heroic measures during battle. They acted bravely and creatively, spontaneously improvising when necessary. Men went above and beyond to please and impress him, and in so doing, they often acted like him. And that's what Ryu is doing here. He's doing a move that you know Nelson himself would have done if he had been in charge of the frigates. As the British line came into the harbor, the Danish harbor guns engaged and did more damage than expected, and then the Danish ships themselves put up a better fight than expected. The Danes hadn't seen serious naval combat in decades, and so Nelson was counting on them to be incompetent, as the French and Spanish mostly were. In fact, they had seen less combat than the French and Spanish, so he thought they would be even more incompetent, but they were not. For whatever reason, the Danes are an organized bunch. They have their stuff together. It actually got so bad that Admiral Parker sees this, and he panicked, and he signaled for a retreat. And this was a disastrous move. With the two forces fully engaged, the Danes would have been able to fire on the British completely unimpeded as they retreated from the fight. Nelson saw the signal for retreat and said to one of his captains, Thomas Foley, you know, Foley, I only have one eye. I have the right to be blind sometimes. And then holding his telescope to his blind eye said, I really do not see the signal. Another account has him saying, I have only one eye and it is focused on the enemy. That perhaps sounds a little less dramatic and maybe a little more plausible. In any case, Nelson makes the decision that he is not going to repeat Parker's signal for a retreat. And luckily for the British, even though Nelson technically wasn't the commanding officer in charge of the fleet, 
he was the leader that everyone looked to. So even though Parker was signaling retreat, they all look at Nelson. He kept running the flag that he was famous for running almost all the time in almost every battle, flag number 16, which meant engage the enemy more closely. So when Nelson didn't signal for retreat, everyone stayed and fought, except for a couple of smaller ships that were not that involved anyway. Well, though the Danes were much more competent than anticipated, a couple hours of heavy fighting was enough for the British to demonstrate their superiority at sea. Three Danish ships were destroyed and 12 surrendered, and the British hadn't lost a single one. Unlike with the French, where Nelson always sought a knockout blow, Nelson knew that the strategic objective called for a friendly peace settlement. So he sent a negotiating party into Copenhagen to begin hammering out a deal. And in the end, the League of Armed Neutrality was disbanded and the Danes, Russians, and Swedes agreed to terms along the lines of Britain's requests. With the bulk of the work done, Nelson went back to England. He was, once again, a hero. The victory at Copenhagen was not quite the stunning, glorious victory that the Battle of the Nile was, but it was a big accomplishment and served to cement his status as Britain's greatest war hero. He would spend the next two years in England. This is 1801 to 1803. Nelson is now in his mid-40s. He briefly spent time in the English Channel, helping to prevent a French invasion, but soon thereafter the Peace of Amiens was signed. This was the only period of peace between the French and the British in the entire course of the Napoleonic Wars. Nelson, who was in poor health at the time, stayed in England, mostly going around to cities and towns giving speeches. He was a very gifted orator. Here is what Andrew Lambert writes about these speeches. He said, He proved himself a truly inspired mass communicator. The style and manner that won the hearts of seamen and officers worked equally well with civic worthies and tradesmen. He spoke to them in a language they understood about things that for the first time made them feel proud to be British. He also spends time with Lady Hamilton and his baby daughter, Horatia. And of course, he's also involved with the Navy, rubbing shoulders with the Admiralty Board, offering his opinion on naval preparations and plans. And there were a lot of plans to be made. Everyone assumed that the Peace of Amiens would break down at some point, so Britain was planning for the possibility of a resumption of hostilities right from the beginning. And they were right to do so, because in 1803, that's exactly what happened. There are a number of reasons for the breakdown of the Peace of Amiens. I would just sum it up by saying, you know, there's this expression from the time that the war between France and Britain, they called it the elephant and the whale. Just funny, because how does an elephant fight a whale? One is an unstoppable sea power, one is an unstoppable land power. And so they're oftentimes fighting indirectly. And the crux of the breakdown of the Peace of Amiens was that the British couldn't tolerate Napoleon being the master of Europe. And Napoleon couldn't tolerate the British being the master of the sea. It wasn't a sustainable situation. So the war breaks out again. And with that, Nelson is, for the first time, put in charge of an entire theater of war. He's made the commander-in-chief of the Mediterranean. It was a very obvious choice. He had extensive experience there. He had deep knowledge and deep relationships that would help him. He's known for seeking out the enemy and delivering a knockout blow, and he's massively popular. The Mediterranean is a big place, so he's managing policy and operations in a hundred different tiny initiatives for the first two years that he's there. One of the things that Nelson shared in common with Napoleon was a thirst for information. Lambert writes, the key to the next two years of Nelson's career would be the gathering, sorting, and assessment of fragmentary scraps of intelligence from a wide variety of sources. They actually both had that in common with a number of other great achievers, I think also of the Rothschilds and of William Randolph Hearst. There's a common attribute of great people. There's a great thirst for more and more information to inform their decisions. And when more information isn't readily available, coming up with creative ways to get it. 
And it's not just intelligence gathering. Nelson's fleet is undersupplied, and so he has to spend two years furiously attending to the small, unsexy minutia that keeps a fleet going. Lambert writes, For 22 months, his ships waited. An unparalleled feat of management, medical provision, morale building, and willpower. At the Admiralty, Jervis, unable to do more than send an occasional replacement for his craziest hulks, and an inadequate supply of stores, could only marvel that the resources of your mind could compensate for such widespread material deficiencies. Nelson is so focused and committed, he does not step off of his flagship for two years. Let me repeat that. He is at sea for two full years, never goes ashore, never leaves his ship. And this is someone who suffered from seasickness. I mean, you can imagine what that must have done to his health. The main objective is a blockade of Toulon. That was the biggest French fleet in the Mediterranean. And the really important thing was to keep them from linking up with the French fleet in the Atlantic at Brest, was, was their port in the Atlantic. The fear was that they would use the combined fleets to attack and clear a path for a French invasion of England. And sure enough, that was what Napoleon had planned. They developed a plan for the fleets at Brest and Toulon to escape, break out of their respective blockades, and rush to the Caribbean where they would meet up at Martinique with a few other smaller squadrons and combine into a single powerful fleet before returning across the Atlantic and attacking, thereby clearing a way for French forces to cross the English Channel and invade England itself. Well, sure enough, one night, the fleet at Toulon sneaks out and makes a break for the Caribbean. Nelson's strategy had been to keep a relatively loose blockade to try to bait them into leaving and then engaging them in battle. But it also afforded them an opportunity to escape. So Nelson pursues hot on their heels, trying to track them down and give battle. They go to Martinique, then Antigua, and they sail around for a while, trying to avoid Nelson and waiting for the rest of the French ships. But the other half of the French Navy never arrives. They hadn't managed to break out of the blockades at Brest. So Villeneuve, the admiral of the French fleet, this guy, Admiral Villeneuve, decides to sail back across the Atlantic. At first, he's going to go straight to Brest to link up with the other half of the fleet that is still blockaded. But then he sees some English ships, gets spooked, and flees back to Cadiz in Spain, where Nelson once again blockades him. Napoleon is furious. He can't believe that he is doing all this work to fight on land, and his admirals just can't figure out how to give battle to the British. You cannot figure out this, what he thinks of as a simple maneuver. So Napoleon orders Villeneuve to leave Cadiz, to take his troops to Naples, and then he sends a replacement to relieve Villeneuve. He's, he's sick of him. And when Villeneuve gets word of this, that he's going to be replaced, he decides that he would rather risk total destruction than to be disgraced and dismissed from command. So he hurriedly leaves Cadiz and sets sail for Naples. But there would be no escaping Nelson this time. Nelson saw his opportunity for the great climactic battle that he had been searching for his entire life. The opportunity to knock out half the French fleet in a single stroke, and he wasn't going to miss it. So we will hear about this battle, the Battle of Trafalgar, after this quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When Nelson saw that the French had left Cadiz, it was actually the French and Spaniards who were allied to the French, he already had a plan in place that he could execute. While blockading Villeneuve in Toulon and Cadiz, Nelson had been active. Importantly, he had been engaging in his old habit of bringing his captains on board for dinners and discussing his plans and thinking with them. He had come up with a plan of attack back in England for engaging the enemy if he was ever given the chance. 
Since the war with France was this battle of the elephant against the whale, Nelson knew that it wasn't enough to merely win such a battle. He needed to crush their navy, the way that Napoleon was crushing his enemies on land. Or, as he wrote the prime minister, it is annihilation that the country wants, and not merely a splendid victory. Honorable to the parties concerned, but absolutely useless in the extended scale to bring Bonaparte to his marrow bones. So Nelson has this strategy that will bring about the utter annihilation of the combined French and Spanish fleet. He's going to divide his navy into two lines, and rather than sailing parallel to them, he will sail perpendicular to them, bisect the enemy line in two places, thereby completely destroying their line of communication and their battle plan, engaging them at close quarters, and relying on superior British firepower and professionalism to annihilate them. Nelson wrote of his officers' reactions when he brought them on board in a war council to initially hear this plan. When I came to explain it to them, it was like an electric shock. Some shed tears. All approved. It was new. It was singular. It was simple. And from admirals downwards, it was repeated, it must succeed. If ever they will allow us to get at them, you are, my lord, surrounded by friends whom you inspire with confidence. Here was Nelson's penchant for motivation at work once again. Certainly his manner of delivery must have been a part of what inspired them so much. He was a great public speaker, but also audacious plans in and of themselves inspire people. And this was audacious. Well, this is the plan that they all have in mind when they see that Villeneuve has set sail from Cadiz. At first, Villeneuve is trying to get to Naples, but just as the fleet leaves, the wind fails them and they're left sitting ducks in the water. Villeneuve vacillates between trying to flee and preparing to defend for a battle. In the end, he decides that they probably can't outrun Nelson, and he forms a defensive battle line. Nelson was technically outnumbered and outgunned, the enemy totaling nearly 30,000 men and 2,600 guns to his 17,000 men and 2,200 guns. But as previously discussed, the British were much more professional and could fire their guns more than twice as fast. The winds were very weak, and so Nelson's fleet slowly crawled towards their enemy, at no more than a few miles per hour, a walking pace. And so they had hours to just sit and stew and think about the battle ahead. At 11 a.m., the two fleets became clearly visible to one another. As a matter of habit, Nelson constantly gathered maritime information, depths, shorelines, and weather information, and from his weather measurements, he could tell that a storm was brewing just beyond the horizon. There were two captains with Nelson during this critical time. As admiral of the fleet, Nelson didn't have his own ship to command. He would have a captain with him so that he didn't have to be thinking about his own ship. He could just be thinking about the fleet. So there was Thomas Hardy, who was the captain of the ship he was on, which was the HMS Victory, and there was Henry Blackwood, who was to command the lighter and more maneuverable frigates. They both went Nelson below decks to witness him write his will. Hardy suggested that Nelson take a place on the second ship in the line so they wouldn't be so exposed to danger. Nelson rejected the idea. It was important to him that he bear as much of a risk as anyone else in the fleet. Hardy also suggested that he at least remove his jacket, which, ornamented with his many medals and decorations, glinted in the sun and made him an obvious target for French and Spanish snipers. Nelson curtly responded that it was a little late in the day for the removing of jackets. 
As cannonballs began to land near the victory, Nelson sent Blackwood off with the line I mentioned at the opening of this show. God bless you, Blackwood. I shall never speak to you again. He sent his final signals to the fleet. He put up his famous signal number 16, engage the enemy more closely. And then he gave one more command. Nelson was always an excellent motivator. He knew just the right thing to say to make someone feel big, to inspire them to live up to his belief in them. On this occasion, he managed to do that to an entire fleet of men. He sent one final message. England expects that every man will do his duty. As the signal was translated and read aloud on each ship, the men roared. Their fearless captain expected them to do their duty, and they would answer that call. And then, just like that, the victory was in range. As the leading ship of its line, the victory was subject to broadsides from three or four French and Spanish ships for half an hour before being able to return fire. It was all they could do to keep their nerve and keep going as they were pounded by the French and Spanish ships. Men were falling all around Nelson. His secretary was standing on deck when he was hit with a cannonball that cut him in two. A double-headed shot from a French ship cut through a file of eight Marines, gruesomely killing them all in an instant. Another shot landed so close to Nelson and Hardy that it knocked the buckle off of Hardy's shoe. Everything was carnage now. Broadside after broadside poured into the victory. They just had to hold on. And then, they were there. The victory fired two broadsides into the heart of the French fleet. One of them tore through the French flagship Bocantour, instantly killing 200 men. The French closed ranks so the victory couldn't pass through, and it ended up ramming a French ship called the Redoubtable. Now they were trapped and immobile, being fired at from three sides, though more and more British help was arriving every second. This is too warm work to last for long, Nelson nervously observed. He was right. At 1.15, Hardy turned to see Nelson lying on the ground. A sniper shot from the Redoubtable had hit him in the left shoulder, passed through his body, puncturing his left lung, cutting an artery, severing his spine, and lodging itself below his right shoulder. They have done for me at last, Nelson exclaimed. My backbone is shot through. He was paralyzed and rapidly losing blood from internal bleeding, much of it flowing into his punctured lung. They took him below deck where the doctor confirmed the injury. His lungs were rapidly filling with blood. It was only a matter of time now. They made Nelson comfortable. He recited a last prayer that he had written for himself. As his energy faded and his world began to darken, he turned to his friend, Captain Thomas Hardy, and said, Kiss me, Hardy. Hardy kissed him on the forehead and then on the cheek. It's a moment that has confused and embarrassed British schoolboys ever since, but I think it was very appropriate to who he was. One writer who observed Nelson said that his men loved him because his affections toward them were as strong and ardent as those of a lover. He went through hell with these men. They had shared experiences that no one else could even understand. He loved them and they loved him. 
And it was unsurprising that as he died, he wanted that physical affection from someone who he had such an intimate relationship with. His final full sentence was, thank God, I have done my duty. He died shortly thereafter, muttering over and over, God, duty, God, duty. In his absence, the British continued to carry out his plan. It was a magnificent success. They carved up the French Spanish surrounding them and obliterating their fleet. It was complete annihilation, just as Nelson had wanted. 19 ships were captured and one completely destroyed. Not a single British ship was lost. The British did, however, lose 1,700 men killed and wounded, while the French and Spanish had lost 6,000 casualties and nearly 2,000 prisoners. As the battle came to a close, word spread throughout the fleet of Nelson's death, and hardened sailors wept like little children as they heard the news. But they didn't have much time to wallow in their sorrows. Shortly after their victory, an enormous storm struck. One French sailor who was there commented about the British, The act that astonished me the most was when the action was over. It came on to blow a gale of wind, and the English immediately set to work to shorten sail and brief the topsails with as much regularity and order as if their ships had not been fighting a dreadful battle. We were all amazement, wondering what the English seamen could be made of. All our seamen were either drunk or disabled, and we, the officers, could not get any work out of them. We never witnessed any such clever maneuvers before, and I shall never forget them. This professionalism was not surprising. It was a hallmark of the British Navy, and especially of Nelson's leadership style. They used this professionalism not just to ready their own ships for the storm, but to assist their defeated enemy as well. In a scene of what I think is almost shocking humanity, the British set about trying to rescue French and Spanish seamen from the storm with all the same energy, professionalism, and tenacity that they had only minutes before used to try to destroy them. Nelson's body was preserved in a cask of brandy. When word of the battle was taken back to England, town after town at first erupted into cheers, only to fall into a sudden hush when they learned of Nelson's death. His funeral was to be arguably the most elaborate in the entire history of England. It was deemed that Westminster Abbey was too crowded to accommodate a tomb as large and elaborate as he deserved, so he was given the prime spot in the heart of St. Paul's Cathedral in central London. He was quickly transformed from a hero to a god, Britain's god of war. The monument that was eventually raised in his honor made this explicit. Andrew Lambert writes, The design finally selected was based around a column copied from Augustus's Temple of Mars Ultor, in the Roman Imperial Forum. The choice was no accident. The Roman temple had celebrated the transformation of a dead hero, Julius Caesar, into a god, linking him with the god of war and the establishment of an empire that would last forever. The role of Lord Nelson in Britain's public imagination has certainly waxed and waned over the years. It was very strong for the duration of the Napoleonic era, but as Britain came to occupy the preeminent position in global affairs during the Victorian era, the role of a hero who saved Britain during an existential crisis seemed less relevant, and his star waned compared to explorers and adventurers. Unsurprisingly, a fascination with Nelson resumed during World War I, and especially during World War II during the Blitz, when British independence was once again threatened from the continent. Winston Churchill was an enormous fan of Lord Nelson and took inspiration from him. In one notable speech to the troops, he said, the warrior heroes of the past may look down as Nelson's monument looks down upon us now, without any feeling that the island race has lost its daring or that the examples which they set in bygone centuries have faded. Today in 2023, Lord Nelson is no longer as revered as he once was, but he's by no means forgotten. I think his example will always be there, waiting, and perhaps when the time is right, maybe someday soon, another hero will take up his mantle.
So let's talk about some of the lessons we can learn from Horatio Nelson. I actually want to start off by talking about the carronade. If you recall from episode one, the carronade was a short-barreled smoothbore cannon that was useless at distance, but up close was absolutely devastating, tearing a big jagged hole through the enemy ship that was impossible to repair. So I want to make the case that Lord Nelson was the Steph Curry of the carronade. And here's what I mean by that. In any field, you have innovations and people recognize their utility and they adopt them. And the usual approach is to gradually adopt them more and more until someone comes along and says, you know, instead of slowly ramping up use of this innovation, what if we just push the throttle to a 10 out of 10? So in basketball, the three point was being adopted more and more, but people were slow to make it the true focal point of their offense because that just wasn't how things were done. Until Steph Curry came along, the greatest shooter of all time, and he completely changed basketball. I've used this metaphor before. I know I'm repeating myself. But Horatio Nelson was the Steph Curry of the carronade. He could see that people were slowly adopting this new technology, and he just said, what if we just push this thing to a 10? What if we were to always close quarters with the enemy and use these things to tear them apart? I have a friend who has an e-commerce shop, and I was talking to him about his shop, and his product is working. He keeps selling more and more product every month. And he tells me that it's going really well and he has a bunch of money sitting in his checking account. And so I said, why aren't you putting that money back into the top of funnel and driving even more sales? And he said, well, we're doing twice as much as we did last month already. And I think that's the natural impulse. Hey, we're doing twice as much. We're just going to keep ramping up. You know, how far do you want me to go? And the answer is all the way. The lesson from Lord Nelson is when you find an unfair advantage like the carronade, you use maximum leverage. You take it to a 10. Like I said, he always had that flag number 16 up for the whole battle, engage the enemy more closely. That's what Napoleon did with his military innovations. That's what the Rothschilds did with their banking network. That's what Alexander the Great did with his Sarissas. And that's what Nelson did here. So when you find a small advantage, you turn that knob to a 10. You apply maximum leverage. Okay, the next thing is his leadership style, what they call the Nelson touch. I think in my cynical mind, I think I often overemphasize the role of strategy and downplay the importance of leaders being able to motivate others. Like, come on, does that rah-rah stuff really make a difference? But time and time again, from Napoleon, Nelson, Steve Jobs, Joan of Arc, William Randolph Hearst, you name it, you see how important it is to be able to motivate people. People said of Nelson that he made them feel 10 feet tall. He made them feel like they were capable of amazing things and they wanted to live up to his expectations. And his strategy was not complicated. He used compliments. He had audacious goals. He took a very sincere interest in others. He loved his men. He aggressively promoted brave captains who performed well. And so I think striking that perfect note is difficult to do, but it's worth putting in the effort to learn to motivate and inspire like Nelson did. One other thing that struck me was professionalism. You got to have a craft. Nelson was committed to professionalism. He ran a tight ship. He practiced when other captains would have taken some time off because there were no pressing assignments. He sailed out into the open ocean and drilled. So that's a takeaway for me. Know your craft, be a professional, practice the little things and get them right. And then my final takeaway is this. Nelson went willingly to his own death. God bless you, Blackwood. I shall never speak to you again. He knew. And why would anyone do that? What is it that meant so much to him that he would go through with a strategy that he could feel in his bones was going to mean his own death? He had just found love for the first time in his life. He had a beautiful young daughter. Why would he give that up? He had just found domestic happiness. Don't we all want to be happy? But I don't think happiness is the right way to think about his motivations. I think Horatio Nelson thought about his life as a piece of art, a living testament to bravery, duty, and the English way of life. And if a glorious death was what was needed to put the finishing strokes on that painting, then so be it. 
and you probably won't have to die to complete your life's work, but I do think that it is a useful lens to look through, to think of your life as a work of art. Is it beautiful? What virtues, what values do you embody? Are you going through life just thinking about being content and making some money, or are you working on something that really matters? That's my most enduring takeaway from the life of Horatio Nelson. Don't just get by. Make your life's work into something worth dying for. Okay, that does it. Until next time, thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World. (laughs) 